You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 16th of October. And on the programme today, we weren't in our normal studio. We were actually broadcasting live from the Jitex Global Conference. Specifically, uh, we were at the Zoho stand in Hall 7 of the World Trade Centre. And we really were in the middle of what is a totally massive event. More than 6,000 companies participate from more than 170 countries. And as you can imagine, we therefore had a little bit of a tech focus on the programme. And we started off with a really intriguing story out of the United States that suggests that tech companies have now laid off more than 400,000 people globally in the last two years. So we looked at the impact that that is having on jobs here. We spoke to Mo Ali, who is a tech recruitment expert, and he gave us all the details on the figures here. We also discussed privacy and AI with the team from Zoho, plus exactly how they've managed to achieve 37% growth in the world over the last year. And we also talked to a tech company looking to make cashless tipping seamless. Yevgeny Chikov from EasyTip told us how his app is going to make it easier for you to tip even in a cashless world. And if you're listening to all this coverage about a big tech conference in Dubai and frankly feeling a bit left out because you don't work in the tech sector, well, we found out how you could get involved. We spoke to two students who are currently studying as adults at the Coding School 42 Abu Dhabi about their experience and why you too could learn how to code. And as the Qataris drop out of a deal to buy Manchester United, We'll find out who the next buyer might be with football agent Safe Ruby. And Robbie Greenfield brought us up to date with all the latest sports headlines. live, as you just heard this morning, from the Zoho stand at Jitex Global. We are happily ensconced uh, right down here at the World Trade Centre. We're in Hall 7. They've got great coffee. And we are really delighted to be here. It does... Jitex Global always feels like the centre of the universe when it's kicking off. I have to say, uh, this year, more than ever, there are literally tens of thousands of people converging on the World Trade Centre now. Uh, and I have to, fair to say that if... Um, if this is anything to go by, the tech landscape here is looking pretty rosy. But I'm afraid I'm going to you know, put a bit of shade on the industry elsewhere in the world because uh, specifically in the United States, more than 400,000 tech workers were laid off in 2022 and 2023. Those are official figures from layoffs.fyi. They're a site that tracks job losses across the industry. And they say that amounts to the industry losing 2.5% of its jobs over the past year. So surely in a globalised world and in such a globalised sector, surely we're starting to feel the impact of that right here in the UAE. Let us find out. I'm joined uh, on my lovely sofas right here on the Zoho stand by Mo Ali. He is the Director of Digital and Technology Recruitment. Um, He joins me and I am delighted to say good morning to you, Mo. Thank you for fighting your way into Hall 7. Uh Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
no idea the efforts that Mo had to go to to, to manage to get past the security <laughs> guards, but he nailed it. Huge thanks to Milani and Caitlin for, for managing to get him in. Um, tell me, Mo, I want to know what the market is like here, because those sound pretty depressing numbers from out of America. What, what's the deal here? Yeah, look, I think uh, in the US, uh, things have taken a little bit of a downsize, um, but it really comes down to over there, people grew quite, uh, quite fat. Uh, you know, they grew quite quickly because uh, there was a lot of investment. Whereas here in the UAE or MENA as a whole, um, you know, people have been growing more steadily. People have been growing more sort of cautiously, especially since COVID. Um, and that's taught us a lot in terms of being able to, to work more productively. You know, it highlighted the fact that people don't need to be in, a, in an office. They don't need to be, you know, working um, in an office to be productive. So, you know, that that's also helped. But at the same time, uh, it you know, the market here is growing quite quickly. So 2022 compared to 2021, it grew like 7.9% and then, you know, just digital and tech. Um, and then since the year before that, it grew 7.5. So over the last two years, it's grown quite a bit. Whereas yes, globally, it has taken a little bit of a sort of a slowdown. People have been losing their jobs, but it's a good thing for us because we're now able to attract some of the best talent in the world. Okay, so what we've got in the United States and, and, and indeed around the rest of the world, we've got a bit of a slowdown. Yes. And so companies just aren't growing as fast. Yeah, they're not, no. But here in the MENA region, are we still seeing growth? Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and I think it comes down to the, the government initiatives here. You know, we've got a lot of initiatives here you know, to, to attract you know, metaverse talent, AI talent, blockchain talent. Uh, and then we've got, you know, the, some of the big players like, you know, your Kareem's, your Talabats, you know, Iowa, you know, you've got a lot of, um, you know, Binance are growing here. You know, so a lot of the big tech companies are moving here and we've got homegrown ones as well. Then as well, Saudi is growing and it will be a force, you know, to be reckoned with in the next couple of years. You know, we've got a lot of people moving from here that have been here five, ten years. You know, people like your Neoms, your Autonomous, PIF initiatives. Uh, even some of the big startups uh, around the region are, are not always based in the UAE, right? So we've got startups in Egypt, in, uh, in Saudi, um, and at the same time, a lot of the companies here are building tech teams in Jordan, in Egypt, because it is a little bit cheaper to, to have staff in those sort of markets. So again, we are able to attract talent here in the region, but also around the region, we've got homegrown talent that are supporting the growth here in the UAE and Saudi. So are we really not seeing any knock-on effects at all? Because didn't you know didn't companies in the UAE and the MENA region get quite sort of fat, as in the amount of staff yeah. they had during COVID as well? We did, and I think there was a lot of growth because of a lot of investment. But the ones that grew too quickly, they did um, you know they did have to let a lot of people go. But again, I don't want to name names, uh, but. Uh, in terms of some startups, and I work with some of them, um, you know, and, and before they were about to happen, you know, heads of digital, heads of technology would reach out and, you know, let us know if we're about to let go of X amount of people. You know, if, if they do reach out to you as a recruiter, can you help them, you know, find another job and another opportunity? But yeah, it did happen, but I wouldn't say it happened as much as it did globally. What impact is this sort of glut of tech workers that are now available because of these losses yeah. in the States? What, what impact is that having on salary packages here in the Middle East? Yeah, so I think uh, I saw all my candidates, this, you know, especially ones that are looking to move here, uh, gone are the days of, you know, the sort of gold paved roads of, you know, of life in Dubai. You know, when I first moved here eight or nine years ago, 
uh, you know, companies were throwing money and salaries and packages and benefits for people to move here. Whereas after COVID, because of the cost of living crisis around the world, you know, just the quality of life even, you know, Dubai is now seen as this place where you can live, you know, live happy, you can live, you know, as comfortable as you, as you want. Uh, it's a work hard, play hard type, uh, you know, sort of environment. So companies now don't need to be throwing, you know, the kitchen sink at you to move to Dubai anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're being a little bit more cautious, you know, schools and schooling allowance and housing allowance and stuff are only being given at sort of senior, senior level sort of positions and only certain companies. Whereas previous to COVID and previous to this influx of talent wanting to move here on their own, yeah, we had companies that were throwing, you know, three, four kids schooling, you know, yeah. and housing allowance and, and things like that. So they're, they're all gone. Have you now genuinely, because people say this all the time about UAE, have you now genuinely got people contacting you saying they want to move here? Yes, um, that's, that's, it's, it's ridiculous because over the last, say, 18 months, I probably get about 30 or 40 candidates calling from, you know, UK, Spain, Italy, France. Uh, they're the main Europeans. Uh, sort of markets that people are wanting to move here and it just comes down to quality of life cost of living inflation um, and a lot of them since COVID have been coming here quite regularly for holidays and they've realized wow like they could live here they could work here plus a lot of these you know there's new visa sort of statuses right so there's a lot more freelancer visas whereas previously you had to be employed to really work here or set up your own business and that was a costly sort of exercise whereas now you've got you know, visas for people that are wanting to come here and work as a freelancer you've got digital nomad visas where people are able to work here for companies in back home so yeah so that, that that's an interesting point there that you've got people who are working internationally but basing themselves here mm. um can i ask you what jobs are most in demand because i mean one of the big themes here at globe Tritex global is artificial intelligence yes. but but i mean what is the job title when it comes to artificial intelligence? You know, it's such a sort of textured industry in itself. Yeah. Look, so, you know, yeah, what, what jobs are most in demand? So I think traditionally over the last three or four years, it's always been software engineers, so developers. Uh, you've got product managers now because every tech company that's building a product needs product managers, uh, product designers. Uh, you've got data engineers and data scientists and data analysts. But within the AI space and blockchain and, and sort of uh, metaverse space you will have a lot more uh, machine learning specialists uh, a lot more data engineers data scientists data analysts because it's all sort of data driven right so collecting information you know figuring out what to do with it and then sort of working from there so that's going to be the big uh, driving point I've got 30 seconds left with yes. you any shortages do you need more data engineers do you need more <laughs> machine learning specialists yeah look I think that 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 definitely would help a lot more you know skilled data engineers data scientists uh, Arabic speaking designers Arabic speaking um, yeah more just Arabic speaking professionals coming from Egypt Jordan you know these sort of markets so, yeah. really interesting stuff Mo absolute pleasure to no have worries. you join me so here at Jotex thank no you fighting your way into Hall 7. <laughs> Kudos to the security guards yes, there yes, who know their job. <laughs> uh, we are live here from the Zoho stand at Jitex Global. It's been a great pleasure there talking to Mo Ali. He is a director of digital and technology recruitment. No doubt he'll be joining us on the agenda many times uh, in the future as well. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. 
a little earlier, I was joined by the president of Zoho for the Middle East and Africa, Haiva Nizam. And as uh, Zoho is seeing exponential growth at the moment, particularly in the Middle East and Africa, I asked him first how it is that they're managing to grow their customer base so quickly. Uh, in Middle East and Africa is the fastest growing market for us globally. Uh, we have a 50% growth in UAE alone. And last five years after starting our operations, local operations here, we saw 10x revenue growth in the last five years. Okay, so tell me, tell me what you're, you're doing to get that level of growth. You're obviously, you're a software company, but you're a, you're a tech company more widely. What products are you bringing to the market? What we are doing here is we are building up a very strategic partnership with government bodies. Like, for example, we have a partnership with Dubai Economy and Tourism, DET, where any business setting up a, uh, you know, a business in Dubai will get a trade license. So as part of the trade license, they get access to Zoho. And we are the only vendor featured in a, in a trade license. And Dubai Economy and Tourism is pushing us. And out of this strategic partnership, we got 5,000 new businesses started using Zoho as our customers. So the reality is, as Dubai grows, and my goodness, we know how Dubai is growing at the moment, you guys grow in partnership. Absolutely, absolutely. That, I mean, that's an amazing deal. How did you get that deal? Like, that's extraordinary without wanting to get into negotiations. No, I, think, I think government, the Dubai government is very smart. You know, they know which vendor to choose for what purpose. And they know that Zoho has 50 plus application to cater to all the needs of a business. So you set up a business, you need an email, you need a website, you need a marketing software, you need a support software, you need a CRM software, you need an accounting software. Right, so pretty much Zoho has all the software, and and the government chose us because we have that breadth and depth, and and that's why we are you know progressing really well with such partnerships. Now, of course, one of the biggest issues for anyone starting a business, in fact, one of the biggest issues for individuals, is this concern about our data. It really feels like there are hackers coming from every side, using ever more intuitive, clever ways. Uh, to try and get our data and, and basically steal our money. How are you managing to, to beat them away? How do you manage to, to keep the, the privacy intact? Right. We do on two fronts, we do a very stringent measures. You know, one is having a very in-house, a, a strong security team, you know, white hacking team, black hat teams, and you know all the security measures are in place. Second thing is, in terms of culturally, we are uh, you know privacy first company. You know, when we wrote our first privacy document in 2006, we said like, we're not going to sell customer data. And uh, we are not going to put ads. We have 100 million registered users using Zoho. When putting a small ad in our products can yield us hundreds of millions of dollars, but we are not in that business. And we don't push our data to any third-party uh, no applications or third-party software. So we have removed uh, ad trackers and stuff like that in our website. It goes you know, very deep. But fundamentally, our culturally, you know, we are a privacy-focused company. And we have all the standard compliance in place in order to make sure we are fully privacy compliant. So obviously artificial intelligence, I mean it's become a bit, I've almost got slightly bored of it now in many ways because it's such a mantra, you know, every single conversation of every single type has to involve us talking about artificial intelligence in some way, but to be honest it's a little bit like when the internet was first invented. So, so we have to because it's just going to be such a life-changing technology over the next decade. How are you planning to embed AI into your software? I think AI is indispensable. You know, that's a way forward. And in our software, for example, we have a customer support software. And when an agent is getting a ticket, 
automatically you know the it will stamp it as the a will stamp it as the sentiment of that ticket whether the customer is uh, you know happy or really irate customer kind of thing so the manager can take action and you know customers can contact in multi channel you know let's say they contact the support through whatsapp and we can you know pull the information from the whatsapp and say that this customer is not happy and correlate the data with their email with their voice and what not and say that the customer is really happy or not and kind of thing and you put the sentiment analysis on that so this is a one sort of uh, you know use case where ai the llms are playing an instrumental role in the in our software and we pretty much touch on crm and all other software as well that's interesting so you're using it to improve your customer service primar- primarily absolutely and then will there be a time when for example you'll have it helping people write emails and things like that you know making suggestions for entire paragraphs indeed so we have a software online word processor called zoho writer we have an zoho mail which is our email system so when you compose an email you say that okay i want to compose a mail to my boss uh, regarding my leave and it can put all the details in place right and similarly you want to put out a social campaign and it can come out with the right content for your social campaign based on the context you provide to the software we have a social software called zoho social so we have tons of use cases been solved using the ai in our 50 plus applications you do get a sense at the moment that all the sort of competing software companies are trying to show off at how they are introducing these these language models uh, large language models into their systems you know you get one guy saying Google, you know, talks about Bard. People are bringing in OpenAI's ChatGPT. Here in the UAE, you know, we've got Falcon that's available, and another one that's in, uh, in the, in the, I think, in the sort of development phase at least. How are you making? How are you making your offering stand out? And, and I want to sort of ask you a slightly personal question in some ways. You know, as a president of a software company, is it slightly exhausting at the moment? This this rush to AI, this this rush to bring in this new technology. I think you know every technology has this rush. You know, whenever new technology comes in, it's very important uh, we put AI. Uh, you know, privacy should be before the AI, so it should be a privacy-focused AI. Whenever you say a LLM, it's like you are exposing all your customer data to the LLM. so you are breaching the privacy so as a privacy focused company we make sure like privacy is first and then comes the ai right so lot of vendors don't focus on that aspect and we as a privacy focused company we make sure we have a vertical focused uh, ai model in place and also we are working on own llm for the business context you know for certain verticals so we are having we are building our own being a technology company we are building our own llm as well so that's how we stand out from the crowd so that's what software companies that you can trust are going to have to do they're going to have to create internal llms because otherwise essentially every time you ask chat gpt a question even without realizing you're giving away something about your company right exactly that's that's the whole point you know and we need to have that tech know-how inside the company so that you you have the security layers and privacy layers on top of the ai and provide a best seamless experience to the customers without compromising their personal data Hi there, Nizam there, the president of Zoho Middle East and Africa. Fantastic to have him join us on the program. And we're very grateful to him for hosting us here at the Zoho stand in Hall 7 at the Dubai World Trade Center. And I have to say there's something of a buzz of excitement here, uh, not least because His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum just walked past the Zoho booth. Uh it is it is always astonishing whenever you see the people in charge of this country how they don't appear to have 
massive groups of security. They don't appear to, they don't close anything off. I mean, literally, His Highness was walking through crowds of people. Everyone had their phones out. Lots of um, sort of attempted selfies. Uh, I, I think His Highness stopped just slightly past this booth or one of the other ones. He paused for a moment um, seemingly unconcerned at the amount of attention that that the group were getting. But certainly uh, the royals, uh, the Dubai royals are here in force. His Highness Sheikh Rashid, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, uh, just taking a stroll through Jitex Global, giving us all a sense of how important this conference is uh, for the UAE, for Dubai's economy. And, And a very exciting moment indeed. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here, keeping you company from the Jitex Global event uh, for about another half an hour or so. Uh, we're specifically based down at the Zoho stand in Hall 7 of the World Trade Center. We're all just sort of calming down a bit after uh, watching His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum walk past our Dubai Eye uh, marketing material. There was a very proud moment for, for everyone here. Uh, a very proud moment for everyone at the Zoho stand as well. Uh, and you really do get a sense there uh, of how we really are in the middle of the event, surrounded by tech experts everywhere I look and some of the world's leading founders, investors and corporate innovators. And obviously we've been talking tech on the program quite a bit, but I was really keen to get into the sort of practical applications of technology, uh, you know, and, and something that we might use every single day. And one of the things that really bothers me at the moment on almost a daily basis is that You know, if I go to an event or if I go to a restaurant um, and there's someone there who's kind enough to valet park my car, I never remember to have cash in the car to give them a tip afterwards. And, And it's a real source of sort of personal disappointment in myself that time and time it happens and time and time I don't make the effort to go to the bank or I don't remember to bring my wallet because I just swipe for everything with my phone now. So I very rarely have a wallet with me. But... The good news is, is that in this cashless society, uh, there are uh, tech tech geeks who are hoping to make the situation easier for us. In fact, a little earlier on the program, we spoke to one of them. It's a guy called Yevgeny Chukov, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of EasyTip. It's basically a cashless tipping platform. And I wanted to get into how their system works. And he joined me uh, about half an hour ago. It's interesting because, you know, in your introduction, you talked about this frustration of not, um, you know, being able to leave a tip. That that's actually the motivation of, you know, my motivation and some of the other team members for setting up this platform in the first place, is to, um, you know, reduce the difficulty of leaving a tip, uh, make it more discreet and simpler. Um, so what the you know, customers of different venues can do. They can simply scan a QR code that they see in that business. Um, they don't need any apps. Uh, just open your mobile phone and your camera. Um, you land on a tipping page that belongs to that tip recipient, or maybe a team of people that service them. And you can choose the amount that you'd like to leave. Um, the whole process takes about three, four seconds. You can pay by card or Apple Pay or Google Wallet. You know various ways of payment and the benefits are very simple so tips go directly to the tip recipient uh, and they go to them very fast so they get more transparency on their income they get their money faster 
and you know they're able to do all sorts of things with them. You know, save, spend, so on and so forth. So we enable them with these financial, basically, um, uh, elements. How do workers sign up to the system? Do, have you been finding that individuals have been doing it, or that companies have been doing it on behalf of their staff? You know, it's more the companies. Um, I think the platform EasyTip um, allows businesses to reduce the level of admin surrounding tipping, uh, reduce some of the costs associated with managing all these tips. And so we find that it's the businesses that approach us in the first place. That's the first point. The second point I think is that you know, for businesses, this is becoming a motivational factor. Um, I think, you know, particularly post-COVID, hospitality and services industries have found it difficult to recruit and attract some of the best staff back into the industry. And platforms such EasyTip, I think, help them do that because A, we increase that level of income, B, we reduce costs, and also, I think, you know, we make it fairer for the entire team. You must have done lots of research on this before you started your company. You know, what type of impact did tips have on workers' incomes? You know, how, how big a percentage is it? Well, actually, I think, you know, you, you were right that a lot of the hospitality and service workers, they, they're on very modest, uh, basic salaries. And so tips actually amount to a very large part of their income on a monthly basis. You know, it, it varies from different industries, but it can be 30, 40, even 60% of people's income. And, you know, they save this money for all sorts of reasons as well. Not just to go out and immediately spend them, but a lot of, um, of these workers actually save money for things like education, uh, rental, buying new properties, um, maybe visiting distant relatives that they've not seen a long time ago. So actually, you know, there's a big social impact and, you know, there is this social mission um, that EasyTip um, kind of fulfills and trying to help with. So if I go on the the sort of employees or the person I want to tip, so say it was the Valley guy mm-hmm. last night and say yeah. I... So I wanted to tip him. I went on his, I scanned the QR page, QR code, and it went to his page, so to speak. What would I see there? Well, you would see that person's name. Um, you would see the place where he works. Um, you would also see maybe a sentence from that person saying what he's collecting tips for, because there is a way of personalizing that page and you know reaching out and establishing that bridge with your customers. Um, and then, you know, you'll see several values that you may want to leave as a tip, basically. But the That's, page is very, it can be personalized in that That's way. really interesting because because I think that's really important, that, that bridge between the people who maybe you don't sort of, who serve you, but you don't necessarily get to know. For example, I could be very grateful to the person who's waited at my table, but if I'm having a business meeting, I don't have the time to get to know that person. Whereas your page would give me the ability to to sort of personalize my appreciation after the occasion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it goes back to the point of transparency. 
not only do we make tips more transparent for the service or hospitality worker, but I think tipping as a process for the customer mm. it will also become more transparent because I, for one, have always had you know frustration with respect to where does my tip go? Yes. Uh, does it actually go to this person or does it go to someone else? When will they receive them and so on and so forth? So I think you know by using easy tip, the customer who leaves a tip has this kind of guarantee that oh I know where my tip goes. And how do the workers get the money out? Because, I mean, that's a, you're, you really touch on a, pin, a really pinpoint on the issue there. If I give 10 or 15% at a restaurant, I have to admit, I, really, I, I just don't really believe that that guy who really put in the effort to serve our really amazing meal, I, I don't really believe that he gets that money directly. And I think I would be more likely to tip if I knew that that guy got it. Well, I, I think, you know, different businesses distribute tips differently number one so I think you know in a restaurant setting for instance you know your experience that you just had after your dinner the responsibility for that is you know probably shared in many ways so it's on the front of house are you the waiter maybe the barman was also kind of included in that the kitchen staff who were cooking the meal so in restaurants quite often tips are shared yeah. and distributed amongst the entire team. In other businesses, they're more individual. Um, but the platform allows both setups, both scenarios. And I think, you know, if you were in the restaurant, you would scan a QR code and you would see that you're tipping the entire team, basically. Okay. So I've got about 30 seconds left with you. Um, easy tipping. Is it? Are you getting lots of people downloading it and lots of people adopting the system? Because I need it like yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We're seeing incredible traction. We were launched a couple of years ago in the UK, but last year we launched in the UAE. UAE is a tremendous market for us. We're seeing massive growth uh, opportunity here. And um, I think one other aspect to just quickly mention is that you know what's unique about EasyTip is our distribution element that we can actually distribute directly to each waiter and each stylist. And for that reason, we're now having many conversations with other platforms that can maybe collect tips, but can't actually distribute them quickly and fairly, right? So, so once you've got it, you of... can then go and spend it straight away. Absolutely, right. Or save it, because a lot of them, as I said, do you want to save and have that, you know, uh, more responsible approach to, to their income? Um, and I think EasyTip allows that. Evgeny Chukov there, the CEO and co-founder of the cashless tipping platform, EasyTip. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to the program. Georgia Tolly here, keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock. And if you've just tuned in, you will notice something slightly different. We are not in our studio in fact, we are live from what feels like the center of the universe right now. Uh, we are live from Jitex Global, specifically the Zoho stand here in Hall 7 of the World Trade Center. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you've recently moved to the UAE, you might not know about Jitex Global. It really is, well, it re- I, I mean, it, it, it's the biggest tech event in the world. It lasts about a week. It takes place at World Trade Center. You get 6,000 companies gathering in all one place. 
it's something of a behemoth. It causes a certain amount of traffic chaos around the top of town every single year. And it really does sort of change the tech landscape. We get so many breaking stories out of uh, this event every single year. And it really does feel like the center of the tech universe for the week that it's here. And it adds a huge amount to Dubai's economy. So it really is great to be live from Jitex Global today. And we're very grateful to the team at Zoho for uh, basically putting us up and serving us great coffee. Um, We've been discussing the sort of practical elements of tech on the program today, specifically uh, functional uses, I suppose. And, And one of the biggest ways in which I would like my functionality improved is I find it very hard to tip because I never have cash anymore. We have a completely cashless society, more or less, now. And as a consequence, I am not tipping enough. It's a source of great guilt for me. Um, a few minutes ago, we chatted to the team from Easy Tip, who are trying to sort of introduce a cashless tipping platform in various different F&B sites around the country and around the MENA region. Uh, but in the meantime, we wanted to sort of discuss tipping culture in the country. And we have been asking you guys to get in touch with us. How much do you tip? Who do you tip? Why do you tip? 4001 or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 A couple of lovely messages coming through. Um, Shareth says, I only tip the regular guys, you know, the kind of the barbers or the guy who mends my watch, which is interesting. I didn't, I, I mean, you can get everything fixed in Dubai, but I hadn't thought of that. Meanwhile, this person texted in saying, I always keep change in my car so I can tip the gas station attendants and the valet. I also tip delivery drivers at least 10% cash and I keep change at home for that exact uh, reason. We wanted to find out from a few restaurant owners, though, what a decent tip is in this country. Uh, we started with uh, Cafe Isan's Lisa Knight. She actually asked her staff about the tipping culture here. 10 to 15% is a great tip at Cafe Isan. The most embarrassingly low tip I think the staff received, it was about 25 euros. And the highest tip was a staggering 500 dirhams. Wow, she also said uh, that whatever you tip, a little bit goes a long way. For those that eat out and don't tip, we'd love them to know that even just a small tip really, really helps the staff just feel great about what they do. And it really, really motivates them to look after customers even better than they already do. And we just had uh, this message in from Juna Balonkas, who's the owner of Friend in Dubai Silicon Oasis. She's sent a message on 4001 saying there was one day where a customer actually tipped their staff a whopping 1,000 dirhams. That was on top of a 32 dirham food bill. So that's putting us all to shame. Uh, meanwhile, Farah Safdar, who is uh, the owner of Asian Street by Thai in JLT and Alpha Jan, Uh, says that he's amazed by how some guests even give tips, not just to the staff in charge of their orders, but to other people as well. We have had people who have come here, you know, sometimes the smallest would be, if there's a change of uh, one dirham, they would leave it on the table and the staff would take it and, you know, take it as a tip. The highest tips I have received, sometimes there was a time where I've seen a person who had left 500 dirhams as a cash tip for the staff. Twice we had people coming in and one of the ladies, she came here and she asked me how many staff are working and at that time i remember um, the people working on the floor and the kitchen was total around 11 people per head she gave one 100 so 1100 dirhams as cash tip 
there was another time where a gentleman walked in and he asked the same question how many people and i told him that we have around maybe 9 or 10 or 11 maybe and he counted and he gave 100 for each stuff credit card tips their people leave which is around like sometimes 70 sometimes 50 sometimes even if they eat for 70 dirhams they would leave the 150 dirhams as a tip Okay, how much do you tip? Who do you tip? Send those messages in 4001 or you can WhatsApp me on 04871555000. Some of our listeners have got in touch. Here is uh you're here from Vernon, Ina, Laura and Art. So if it's a good restaurant, 20% if it's just a regular restaurant between 10 to 15. In a lot of times I find like in restaurants now they do include the 10% service charge and then like a 7% municipality fee and so I'll probably then just leave a smaller something small for the server especially if it's good service. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It really depends on the service. And there is someone who taught me before that if there's a service charge most of the time you don't really have to tip. So I have been following that ever since. Hi, yes, I do. tip usually if i'm in a restaurant or if i'm um going to a spa maybe and having a massage or a facial usually around 30 dirhams i would tip but i i'm still i've been in the uae now for 6 years and i'm still unsure actually whether that's that's the going rate that you tip whether i should be tipping more um if i have excellent service from somebody then i'll i will definitely tip more that would make me want to um give more money But yeah that's that's what I would usually do with tips. I always give tips to the delivery man from the cafeteria either they deliver to my office or they deliver at home. I always say to it that even if I pay by ATM card I have some dirhams for them. I just tell them that uh, for your chai. That's art there. He also added uh, whenever he's in restaurants he usually gives a 5% tip. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. And as you can probably hear in the background, we are live from Jitex Global, specifically live from the Zoho stand here in Hall 7 of the World Trade Center. Now, if you're coming down to Jitex, if you're here already, maybe you're listening on headphones. Come and see us. Come have a coffee. Come and meet the guys from Zoho. Uh, come and get uh, come and get a pick with the, the Dubai Eye team. We would love to see you. Uh, we really are in the middle of the event here. And actually, I've been joined now by two uh, fascinating guests, uh, both of whom are giving those of us who are not working in the tech industry right now a glimmer of hope that we could potentially make the move because I'm joined here uh, by Gaith Abdoush and Ahmed Salem who recently uh, took up a coding course it's not an ordinary coding course it is um, introduced by 42 Abu Dhabi now if you haven't heard of 42 Abu Dhabi before it's a really innovative coding school it 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 is a school of excellence and it is very tricky to get onto the curriculum it's very tricky to to gain access to the course but they go about it all in a really interesting way and and so that's one of the reasons why I'm delighted to have Gaith and Ahmed join us here on our sofas in the Zoho uh, stand hi guys good to see you how good are you now very noisy so i'm going to get you to hold the microphones really close to your mouth because otherwise we're going to get all the ambient noise um okay so tell me guys you are in the middle of the 42 abu dhabi course at the moment uh 
Ahmed, how, tell me why you decided to take up the course, what you were doing, because you know, you're, you're a grown man, so you're not like a brand new <laughs> yeah. sort of 18-year-old student. What led you to do the course? Pharmacist with uh, nine years uh, experience in multinational companies across, across three countries. I, like while working at pharma companies, I had a lot of experience like personally and business-wise. I always woke up with this feeling that there is something more I can do. Like there is more value I can to add to my life and other people's life. Uh, after like deliberate long search, I found I need to do like technology startup. So I need to learn to code. So I started learning coding, self-learning for two years beside my nine to five job. Then I found 42 Abu Dhabi, uh, pure coincidence. I applied to the piscine, it was really tough. Uh, then fortunately I was accepted as student. Uh, during this period I, I decided to move to be a full-time student at uh, 42 Abu Dhabi. Uh, actually the self-learning is amazing but there is always a gap. There is something missing. Uh, you learn like amazing theory but when you need to do a real project that helps people, there is something missing. Like I found filling this gap in 42 Abu Dhabi. Like it, it's not only teach you how to code, teach you how to execute real world projects. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you were trying on your own for two years and then you realized that actually you probably needed a bit more structure, potentially. Exactly. Gaith, what was your story? You, you, are an, you are another grown man. You're not an 18-year-old <laughs> student. What led you to go back to study effectively? Yeah, actually, actually my story it's kind of uh, seems to Ahmed. Like, uh, it's, kind, it's like relative to Ahmed. So I started from... Uh, I am full now. I am full-time student now in 42 Abu Dhabi. But what my friends don't know that I am an agriculture engineer and I studied worked in agriculture also same like nine years ago. But every day of those nine years I woke up and I it's not my dream. I want to change it. It's not my career, you know. So one day, four years ago, I woke up, I this is enough. I start learning coding by myself. Then I was so lucky to be introduced to 42 Abu Dhabi. You know, like Ahmed said, 42 Abu Dhabi is like self-learning, self-taught, and we are peer-to-peer -peer learning. Uh, there is a nice saying I want to say, it's hard work always beat talent. That's what we are doing literally in 42 Abu Dhabi. Okay, so you guys are actually encouraging many people who are listening now. Like, and, and, and I think many people, the feeling that many people get at Jitex Global, if you're not involved in the tech sector, I think people feel like they've missed the boat. I think you've got a sense that other industries are dying out, that it's, fine, it, that it's harder and harder to make progress in any industry without a level of tech knowledge. And that is something that 42 Abu Dhabi, as a, as a coding school, can help people with. But, but do you have to be a certain type of brain? Like realistically, you guys have both been working for nine years in different sectors, disparate sectors, but clearly up to university level, like you were both clearly very bright people. Um, Ahmed, what would you say about you know making that move to becoming a coder, making that move to retrain as an adult? Okay, uh, from my experience in 42 Abu Dhabi, like, I have seen a lot of inspiring stories. So I have seen like uh, like a guy with 18 years old, no coding background, uh, and now it's like, mashallah, very amazing level. It all requires patience. I see, uh, like I have one of my friends, he's like a uh, master holder, AI master holder. But he needs to get more practical uh, practical skills. That's why he joined for Abu Dhabi. I have friends of mine who work a full-time job and come at the weekends. I have people who are studying, still studying in the university. People who finish university, whether take or non-take. We like, have all inspiring stories. And they are all doing very good at 42 Abu Dhabi. 
it's not necessarily requiring you, yourself to be a genius. It's just required to have patience. Uh, like the kind of the curriculum is designed in 42 Abu Dhabi that anyone can start it, can start. But to move on, you need patience, uh, you need to have like uh, resilience, you need to, to have like this sense of collaboration. You are part of community, you need to ask for help and receive help to nourish a 42 Abu Dhabi. So it's totally doable. Well, you say that, and I'm looking at you and thinking, I was really bad at maths at school, and I wasn't great at science, and I'm not very good spatially. I was sort of more on the language, as you can tell, the more sort of language literature side of things. Gates, do you think realistically that I'd have a chance? I, uh, you do? Every, everybody have a chance, you know? Like, for example, in 42 Abu Dhabi, like Ahmed said, we just need resistance. Be patient, be persistent in your, like, don't quit. If you keep resistance of your project, you will you will reach there at the end, you know. And in the tech industry, it's not like we are replacing the other jobs. It's like we are enhancing the other jobs. Ahmed, what is the average age of people who are on the course? You know, who, who's the eldest, for example? Who's who's the median? Okay, uh, the eldest we have fifty something. We have a lot of people in forties, thirties, twenties. The number of the average twenty seven. Oh, wow. So it really is people who've entered the world of work and then looked for a way to retrain. Exactly. Like, for, to be accepted in 42 Abu Dhabi, you need to be above 18 years old. And that's the only obligation? That's it. That's it. So you guys, obviously, um, Ahmed, you were in pharmaceuticals and yes. um, Gaith, you were in agriculture. agriculture yeah. Two very different industries. Exactly. But you're halfway through the course now. Have you already started to use your new skills, Gaith? So... We started to create some MVP, some project, minimal viable projects okay. using AI and machine learning, what we learned from 42 Abu Dhabi. So, for example, me and Ahmed, we created uh, during a competition an MVP to help the people of determination who have like visual impairments. We created a small app that will translate the video into text. So, who, whoever, who have like a visual impairment will listen to everything he's supposed to see. So you guys, how many months in are you? And you're already creating apps? Uh, exactly, like maybe 10 months. So you're 10 months into the course, and was this part of your coursework then? Some of, some of it, it's part of the course. Some of it, like, uh, you, you are encouraged to take it. So for example, AI and machine learning, like half of it, it's inside the course, and the rest, like, we are encouraged to take it. Ahmed, what, what sort of guided you towards choosing this type of app? You know, the, the, the sort of, it, it's a language app, ultimately, in some ways. Um, actually, uh, we had a competition in 42 Abu Dhabi, run by a company about the computer vision. So, uh, like we asked ourselves, what can we do with computer vision? So, it was obvious for us we need to help people with blindness to see the world. So, uh, we used a model to translate the, the video to, uh, like, the images of the video to text then to, to translate your text to be spoken to the people, uh, the, the kind of person with blindness, to help him uh, navigate. Yeah, and about the, the question of the curriculum, actually the curriculum 42 Abu Dhabi, it focuses on building strong base, strong foundation in programming. So it starts with something simple like putting a character on the screen, and it, it builds up as if you are rebuilding the whole computer. You, you build the, the like something small, small parts of the operating system. You, you're building small parts of the internet. So you are empowered to learn any new technology. Like for the computer vision, this was my first time in my life to touch computer vision uh, technology. We did this application in 24 hours. Like we didn't sleep, almost didn't sleep during the hackathon. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I mean, I love the idea of the sort of that intensity and, and that idea that 
if you've learnt the building blocks of coding, then you can translate it. It's like a language. You can almost translate it in, into anything. But if you'd seen yourself 10 months ago, would you have envisioned being able to do something like this? How steep is the learning curve? Uh, actually, before you mean before starting Photoshop? Yeah. No, it's totally hard. It can take months. It can it take months to build. Yeah, of course. Like, for learning programming, it doesn't matter which programming language you use. Like, you need to have the mindset of programming. You need to have how the computer is working, how the programs are communicating with each other. You need to have the sense of how the user is going to use your product. You develop all of this stuff within 42 Abu Dhabi. But now I'm in part, like, to do, like, minimum five product, if I have an idea, I can put it into action, into a real product, like, within a few days. It will not be perfect. To, to perfect it with, might take months, but I can know it already works. I have a proof of concept. Could anyone learn how to code, do you think? I'm going to ask both of you this question. Ahmed, I'll go, I'll go with you first since you've been speaking. This is a tough question. Yeah. I can say anyone with enough curiosity to know how this type of commands you write on the screen can control a drone, can fly a plane, can control an AI. This type of curiosity, patience, and to give time, definitely will be able to learn uh, coding. You guys have said the word patience about six times in this interview. And it is tough. It, <laughs> it is tough to you then. <laughs> I, will, I will keep on the patient. I will keep on the persistence. But like, come on, I have a background of agriculture and now I am creating MVP for like machine learning and AI. And the reality of that is, do you think that you have future-proofed your career going forward? Do you think that you will that you will have the skills that will always be relevant in the future now? For sure, for sure. Like like I said before, like uh, the tech and coding always enhance my skills. Amazing to speak to both of you. I have to say, I don't think it would suit me, <laughs> but, but you never know. And that is the secret. And that's what's great with 42 Abu Dhabi is that my understanding is that you guys, they call it the piscine, don't they? Because it's an, a, originally a French school. You all go along and you do a day's sort of tests and they figure out whether your brain is the right type of brain. Okay, uh, piscine, like it means an English swimming pool. Yeah. So this is the kind of way we learn, like they push you in the swimming pool, you need to learn how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to initially know how to survive during the piscine. So it's like 25 of intense day, uh, 25 days continuous, you have to submit projects, you need to, uh, to, to, to go through four exams, kind of tough exams, it's only you and the terminal, only your computer, no internet connection need to figure out how to fix all of this. It's tough experience, but you need to, to like, uh, you need to, we will create a lot of great lifetime friends, and you know a lot of stuff about yourself that doesn't exist. So it's not for the faint-hearted, but it does sound very rewarding indeed. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on the program. I really appreciate it. I was really keen to try and get, you know, for people who aren't involved in tech, I was really keen to get the sort of impression across of how you might be able to, to make that transition. I've been speaking to uh, Gaith Abdush and Ahmad Salam. Thank you very much indeed, and, and I wish you the best of luck. When do you graduate? Do you know? Uh, uh, never. Uh, actually, <laughs> actually, for me, it's uh, around two months from now. Two months for you. Sure. Gaith, how long for you? Also, like two months for me, two it's going to be, yeah. Fantastic. Well, congratulations, guys. Come and talk to us in another two months. It's been a great you, pleasure having you. you here on the agenda, live from Jitex Global, live from the Zoho stand. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolly on Dubai Eye 103.8. My next guest needs no sort of detailed introduction uh, because we are going to be chatting to Safe Ruby. He is a renowned 
uh, football agent. Uh, he's very much involved in any negotiations that you might hear about going on in the uh, in the Premiership. And there's a reason why we've got him on the line. It's because a rather important deal, a rather impressive deal, actually fell through over the weekend. Apparently, uh, Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani has apparently withdrawn from the process to buy Manchester United. Now, Sheikh Jassim had bid five billion for the club, but further talks this week have apparently broken down. Now, the Glazer family, who own Manchester United at the moment, announced in November 2022 that they were considering selling. So, what on earth has gone wrong? Let's find out with Safe. How are you doing? Thanks for joining me on the line. All good. Good to see you. Good to speak, Georgia. Good morning. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. What do you think went wrong then? I mean, look, I think as you um, sort of said it just now, there's been a, a lot of apparently uh, mentioned. Now, um, obviously, Manchester United and the Glazer family who own the football club have, uh, you know, been a, quite an unpopular ownership group. Um, as they purchased the club a long, long time ago using a leverage buyout model, which is not allowed to be done anymore nowadays. And, you know, they've basically been pretty much sort of been using the club's money to kind of fund their own th themselves. Um, and the fans have not liked that because there's been no extra money spent on infrastructure, such as obviously the stadium which as, as glorious as it is, is kind of like quite old and dated now and things like that. So there's been a lot of demand from the fans for the Glazers to leave. And, uh, you know, they were flirting with the idea of selling the club. And obviously Sheikh Jassim from Qatar, you know, was a, a very serious cash buyer for the club. And apparently, you know, those talks um, are off now. And there's been talk of Sir Jim Ratcliffe who was the other serious bidder taking a smaller percentage of the club uh, with a view to taking over football operations. But, you know, as far as I know and believe, obviously that's not what the fans want. And that's why there's a lot of uproar at the moment um, in the red side of Manchester. Do you think Sheikh Jassim has walked away for good or could this just be a sort of bargaining tactic? I mean, I don't know about bargaining because the deal is the deal and Sheikh Jassim's offer is, is the best offer Manchester United are ever going to get in their lifetime. However, it's up to the fans now to react to that apparently announcement because they're the only ones who can really forcibly make their feelings and uh, opinions known to the ownership group. Um, but, you know, now is the time for them to really stand up if they really want their football club to be back to the glories of former years uh, under Sir Alex Ferguson's reign. Is it affecting the players? Does this type of thing sort of bother people who are busy on the pitch or do they just, you know, can they just, can they play through it? I mean, look, the reality of the situation, everybody has their opinions on this side of it, but, you know, the players are paid to play football and they're very well paid. And actually, on that front, Manchester United have also spent, you know, substantial amounts of monies in recent years on signing players. So I think as much as people want to use that as an excuse for them performing so poorly on the pitch, I don't really buy it because 
as a professional uh, footballer or a sportsman in general, you know, they're, they're given everything in terms of what they need to do to perform on the pitch. So that all comes down to the work done at the training ground by the management team and the players. So they may want to say it's a reason why it's affecting them, but the reality is that's a bit of a poor excuse considering they're supposed to be high level, you know, uh, football players uh, playing for one of the most historical clubs in the world, which in itself should be enough of a motivation to to not keep underperforming as they have been over the last 12 to 18 months. Considering your your depth of experience, your depth of knowledge of football, who do you think will end up owning Manchester United? Honestly, it's the $64 million question, or in this <laughs> case, the, the $8 billion question. Um, you know, really, it should just be a straight, easy um, Sheikh Jassim takeover because, as far as I know, he was ready to deploy, you know, $6 billion towards uh, towards uh, the purchase buyout debt-free from the Glazer family, as well as another one and a half to two billion, making sure that all the facilities. Yeah. So, but but now there's obviously talk of um, um, there's talk of uh, Sir Jim Radcliffe coming in and taking a minority stake. So that that's what could happen, or it could be posturing, like you said, in order to sort of force you know, the Glazer family with, you know, uproar from the fans to really do what's best for the football club and not just what's best for the Glazer family. Say, fantastic to have you join us on the line. As always, thank you so much for your time this Monday morning. Say, Ruby there. Of course, Football Agent does a lot of work in the Premiership and certainly tends to have the inside track. So fantastic to get him to join us here on the Agenda programme. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. We're not just talking about tech, though. We are going to be discussing the latest uh, sports headlines. Robbie Greenfield joins me on the line now after what must have been one of the busiest weekends of sport of the year. Robbie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, George. I'm still recovering from what we witnessed late last night, yesterday, I'm going to say it, probably the greatest game of rugby I've ever watched <laughs> on the sofa, of course. Do you know I missed it? Needless to say, my husband and boys had, had something of a party in our house and everyone was watching it. Uh, but but I, hear, I hear England won. Look, forget about England. Forget about England. Oh, we're not not even England. We're, we're not talking about England. We're, we're, we're here to talk about the greatest game of rugby, certainly at the quarterfinal stage, maybe of all time. Um, following on from what was a pulsating match between Ireland and New Zealand on Saturday night. I mean, those were the two major quarterfinals. I'm English, you're English. Frankly speaking, England don't have a cat in hell's chance in the semi-finals. I'm going to say that now because South Africa versus France last night, it was heavyweight rugby at the very highest possible level. It was absolutely electric. It was captivating. It was back and forth. It was on a knife edge. Momentum flows one way and then the next. France started, came out of the gate absolutely sensationally with Anton Dupont just pulling all the strings. Their brilliant scrum half who was back from injury. It looked like they had the belief of the nation behind them, that they had the momentum. But South Africa, Georgia, are just a tough nut to crack on the World Cup stage. They're the defending champions for a reason. They are a team full of man mountains and they've got the heart and the mentality to, to match the physicality and they managed to, to beat France by a single point. It was 
a try from Eben Etzebeth in a tight second half after a crazy first half that finished 22-19 to France. I mean, honestly, if you get a chance to watch the highlights, I would urge you to do so. Some brilliant tries, some incredible rugby. When rugby's played like that, it really is. It doesn't have any equal on the sporting stage. And I only say that because it's very seldom that we see rugby of that kind of quality. But we were privileged enough to see it last night. And it's South Africa who break the French hearts by a single point. They get uh, turfed out of their own home tournament. And it's South Africa who book themselves a date with England, who, I'm going to say it now, they are going to absolutely eviscerate on this episode. <laughs> Robbie, come on, a bit of patriotism, please. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm all for patriotism, but I'm also a realist. And I've not seen anything that England have done this tournament that have convinced me, even in the slightest, that they have the wherewithal, the tools necessary to get a result against the Springboks. I mean, it, it just, it's, it's impossible to see it. But, you know, who knows? Sport sometimes throws up a miracle. Maybe we'll see one on the weekends. And from an English perspective, it would really require a miracle because South Africa have been performing at just a sensational level and England have been scraping through their games. It looks like they're playing a different sport. It, it looks like a totally different sport. And I'm not exaggerating on that front. The other match okay. we've got to talk about very quickly, Ireland, yeah. New Zealand. You know, we were convinced that this was maybe Ireland's year, much like France were convinced that they were destined. Ireland really felt like it was, you know, they're the number one team. They were going to break this massive curse that they've got over the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Not to be. It was a brilliant match, another fantastic match in that, in that quarterfinal against New Zealand. But, you know, these Southern Hemisphere teams, they, they turn up in the knockout stages and they just deliver. And that's what they did. And, and New Zealand were, were fantastic, I thought, against Ireland in the part of France on, on Saturday night. And, and that will be, a, I think, a routine win for them in the semi-final against Argentina, who have also come through the weaker side of the draw. So, look, I'm tipping a New Zealand-South Africa final. And, wow, that's going to be an absolute treat. Those two sides mm. are going to go leather and ha hammer and tong um, for, the, for, the, for the prize. But who knows? Miracles can happen sometimes. And if you're looking at shots, I've just got to quickly touch on the cricket because England, yeah. uh, not so successful there. An amazing victory by Afghanistan yesterday. Their first ever against England, the defending World Cup champions in any format of the game. And it wasn't just a win. It was a bit of a rout. Afghanistan won by 69 runs. And that is a, a result that will send shockwaves through the world of cricket. Uh, now, I have to say, Chris McCarty told me that he thought France was going to win. Did you think, this is going back to the rugby, did you think France was going to win? Was your prediction the same? I did. I predicted New Zealand and France. So I got one of them right. So it's 50-50. My <laughs> which, goodness me. It's not bad. It's not bad. Which is, so which is not great. 50% 50, 50 hit rate is, isn't the best. But uh, no, I, I was sure that France were going to win. I, I thought that, I thought with Dupont coming back and I thought with the home advantage, the home crowd behind them, they felt like they were unbeaten in 18 matches at home. Everything was lining up in their favour. But I think what we all perhaps underestimated from, from that perspective, at least, was the grit. The, the, the sheer willpower, the, the mental fortitude of South Africa. They, they are an immense beast on the world stage. They, they really are, not just when you look at them, because they're a team full of absolute units. I mean, six foot eight, six foot nine, 18, 19 stone blokes crashing into you. That's not pleasant by any means, way, mm. shape or form. But it's not just their physical power. It's their ability to put pressure on side. It's their ability to force errors. It's their ability not to make errors in critical moments when the game is on a knife edge. And that really was all the... It was such a fine margin. It was one point at the end. It was an Ebenezer best try after France had led by six points. They got a penalty 
Ramos was, was kicking brilliantly for France. And then South Africa managed just to turn it around. Andre Pollard landed a brilliant penalty from just inside the halfway line from about 52 metres. Great to have him back. That bodes well for the Springboks because he's a kicking machine. And I felt that Manny Leboc, as, as good as he is in open play, isn't so good from the, from the kicking, uh, kicking duties as, as uh, Pollard. So to, to have him back is, is a, big, uh, a big plus for South Africa. But look, uh, France were, were superb at times. They were inspirational. They were mercurial. They were electric at times in attack. But they, they just didn't quite have what it took to, to, to beat South Africa. It was, it was an epic, an absolute epic. I can really tell from the from your voice on it, Robbie, that you, you clearly had the best weekend of sport ever. Thank you so much for obviously waking up early to come and talk to us on the agenda this morning. It's been a great pleasure having you join us uh, and plenty more to look forward to in the coming weekends, of course, when it comes to uh, the Rugby World Cup. Also, of course, the Cricket World Cup. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.